another episode of the Speak Plainly podcast, where we speak plainly about things that matter. I'm your host, Owl Medicine, and I want to apologize for being gone, but I had an amazing time. I went out to Hawaii for a week-long event of weddings. It was actually a little bit more than a week. Um, I said weddings. It was a singular wedding between two people. It was a marvelous time, and I am happy to be back in the saddle doing the podcast again. So... Coming back from that incredible, incredible time that I had with my friends, my friends are a wonderful, impressive group of people. Um, and in looking at like what I wanted to do this week, I realized I talk a lot about ADD, ADHD, about quite a few um, psychiatric disorders and that sort of thing, but always like and kind of in passing. One of them I talk about the most is probably ADD or ADHD. And so I decided that it was important um, and worthwhile to do an episode on what ADHD actually is. Previously known as ADD, only as old people call it that anymore. It switched from ADD to ADHD in the mid-80s. So that's what today's podcast is going to be on. I'm going to talk to you about ADHD. We're going to talk about attention versus perception versus like experience. We're gonna talk about how time perception is affected in people in ADHD. We're gonna talk about the neurobiological underpinning. Like for a long time, we didn't really know what caused ADHD and now we really do. Um, there's, uh, there was a paper published in 2015 that has the theory that I've mentioned in this podcast before, the low dopamine theory. And we're gonna cover that in a bit more detail than I have before. So we're gonna talk about that default mode network and the task-focused network works. We're not going to get too sciencey, but we're going to talk about those a little bit. I talk about dopamine a lot on here, and we talk about it as a neurotransmitter, but importantly, it's also a neuromodulator. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between mediation and modulation, which is quite important to me because... My whole thing is trying to make the world leave it a little better than I found it, right? And in order to do that in such a complicated, complex system, the galactic system, the Earth's bio, biological and biosphere system, as well as all the other systems that I and you live in, chaos theory is in scientific terms, sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. And so I'm very interested in the really fine, like fine tooth comb looking at initial conditions. And when it comes to ADD and ADHD, we have to look at those things close enough that we do have to kind of split hairs a little bit, not as often as maybe some people would, but at least when it comes to mediation versus modulation. We're going to talk about self-medication and elimination diets. We're going to look at the common treatments of ADHD and like the effects of puberty and treatments, pharmacological treatments before and after puberty for ADHD. And we're going to talk about 
attentional blinks, not your actual physical blinking, but that is actually kind of cool too because it's intrinsically tied to the dopamine system. And because the whole thing with ADHD is that low dopamine theory, there's some interesting stuff in there, but it's just, it's a lot to cover. So I've limited myself <laughs> for your sake to attentional blinks and we'll finish off with a little bit of information about ADHD and social media and some of the studies that have been done. And there haven't been a whole lot done because social media really didn't become a part of our lives until smartphones became popular and they didn't really do that until like 2010. So it's really only been 12, 13 years. And that's not a lot of time for like longitudinal studies. So that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive into ADHD and I hope that you enjoy it. So what exactly is ADHD? You probably already know it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. You heard me say ADD um, slash ADHD because when I was growing up and when I was diagnosed with ADD and ADHD, they were still arguing about which one it which one it could be, should be. So I'm really just dating myself there. But ADD is what it used to be called. Now we added the hyperactivity disorder part, and that actually helped quite a bit with diagnoses for young children especially. But the very first mention of ADD was in 1904 in in, in what we consider medical history. And we have to assume that it's been around much longer than that, right? Like, nothing was invented because it was written down. Usually it was there beforehand. And ADD is no different. And it stayed attention deficit disorder until the late 80s. And that's when we added the H to it because we also noticed that the people who had attention disorders also had some hyperactivity in them. And we're like, okay, so slap an H in there. What it is, is a attention disorder. Your attention is disordered. You're not able to order around your attention. And what exactly is attention? Uh, This is important to me because to me, I really believe this with all my heart, attention is the single most powerful currency that you have. Even the dollar or euro or yen is based on how much attention you can bring to a task. You bring enough attention to a task, you do it well, and people will pay you for it. So to me, attention is fundamentally the most important currency in the human species. The attention that we pay to ourselves, the attention that we pay to our friends and our families, to our partners, the attention that we pay to our jobs, to be able to make the money, to take care of and be a part of and enjoy our family and our life. Attention is the single most powerful thing on the planet. And having disordered attention, I'm sure that you guess or know that that kind of throws a wrench in things so this isn't going to be about me trying to get ADD or ADHD people to do anything specific but I really think that dealing with our lack of attention whether you're an ADHD person or not 
dealing with your lack of attention or lack of focused attention, that your lack of being able to control your attention is really beneficial for absolutely everybody because all of us could do a little bit better in our lives if we were able to control our attention. So what exactly is attention? Well, the way I do it, and I'm, I might say attention, I might say focus, um, they mean the same thing, at least for this podcast. And what you're separating here is what are you experiencing in every every moment of every day? There's a there's a, a cacophony of sensory information around us that we are filtering. That part of our are that our brains are filtering the reticular activating system for one, but our brain is very busy filtering out all the crap that really isn't that important to us. And the things that it lets through that are important to us, those are the things that we are focused on. That is what our attention is. You could be sitting down right now, you probably are, and until I say that you're sitting down and you can feel your butt in the seat, you probably felt your butt in the seat or on the back of the seat, but you didn't notice it. It wasn't in your attention. You were experiencing it. It was in your experience, but it wasn't within your realm of attention. That realm of attention is focus. So attention deficit disorder is a disorder of your ability to control what it is that you are perceiving. Because your environment, your experience of your environment, you're experiencing all kinds of things, but it's your perception of what you're experiencing, which is your attention. So why is ADHD a problem? ADHD is a problem for people because it often comes with time perception issues. That is one of the big things. We're late for a lot of stuff. We don't perceive time well. You can know that you have a paper due tonight at midnight and it's 7 p.m. And somehow you're all, we always underestimate how much time it's going to be to do anything. And I think that's true for everybody, but it's especially true for ADHD people. We also tend to have the pile system. We use the pile system. And the pile system, I think most people know and most people have used at least like after a move or before or after a vacation where things are just a little bit chaotic and you throw like things with other like things. And the ADHD person will use the pile system, but importantly, what makes it an actual ADHD symptom, because again, this is a disorder, is that your pile system doesn't work. If, if you have a pile system and it works for you, dope. If your pile system doesn't really work for you, you might have ADHD. And again, this is educational and informational, not diagnostic. I am not a doctor. I'm not diagnosing you with anything. I'm sure you already diagnosed yourself with plenty. But those are two issues that ADHD people have and there's a lot of other like crap that goes along with it that are kind of just in the in the zeitgeist about ADHD people being um being well I dumb because they don't have attention and that's not true. We actually we know now that there's a huge variety of of 
intelligence among ADHD people. Some have higher IQs in certain areas and some have lower IQs. There is a there is a trend among ADHD people to have higher emotional IQs, which I find very interesting. And if you've listened to much of this podcast or me talk about the book and trauma, you will know exactly why. And we'll get there because this is about ADHD, but my whole bent, I think you're very, very hard-pressed to find a child with ADHD who doesn't also have childhood trauma. But we'll get there a little down the line. Um, another thing for ADHD people is memory. We have a really hard time with short-term working memory where like the, the classic thing is getting somebody's phone number or name and immediately forgetting it like not even a second later like by the time i could repeat back your name i've already forgotten it that kind of thing that is very much associated with um adhd but one of those misnomers is that ADHD people just have terrible memories. And that's not actually true. Some of us have really phenomenal memories. We're good at especially long-term memory. We can remember a lot of details about certain things. It's just our working memory, our like that task focused memory of like, this is what I'm focused on. And I'm going to stay focused on this for the next 10 seconds until I can go write it down. And that's where we struggle the most. And so with those memory issues, there's a really important and cool thing that most people know by now about hyperfocus in ADHD which seems counterintuitive because when we talk about a, attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it, you'd think that you just can't focus, but that's not actually true. Turns out that ADHD people have an incredible ability to focus on whatever interests them. If something is interesting to them, they can stay hella super focused for a very long time. And that's super interesting to me. And it kind of that that noticing that piece is a lot of what led to the very important 2005, uh, 2015 paper that describes the mechanism, the biological mechanism underpinning the ADHD phenomena. That paper was published in 2015 in the uh, Journal for Biological Psychiatry, and it's called the Low Dopamine Theory. And basically, what's happening in the brain of an ADHD person on kind of a high-level view is we have two. When I say we, I mean people, human species. We have two basic networks in the brain that our that our brain can choose from and dopamine is like i said not just a neurotransmitter but a neuromodulator and it helps modulate as in it helps to ramp up or ramp down the activities of certain networks these two networks are the default mode network and you can kind of guess what it might be that's your default setting that's your just chilling everything's everything's running and you're 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 chilling you can you're you're noticing stuff but you're not really focused on accomplishing anything 
And then there's the side where you are focused on accomplishing something. Because, I mean, this makes sense. It's super basic, right? You're either doing something or you're kind of not. Um, and even when you're not doing something, there are things happening. And that's great. But basically, for our purposes, you're either active or you're passive. And that active attention is coming from this task-focused network. And the way it's supposed to be in the brain, and this makes sense too, pretty intuitively, you're either in your default mode network where you're chilling and you're like you're in that horizon view um, with your actual eyes. They'll reach this, they'll look at the horizon and you're able to see the, the ceiling and the floor and your periphery quite well. And that's one mode that you're supposed to kind of spend most of your time in because that's the default. The other is task. That's where you're trying to accomplish something. And all of the time that we're trying to accomplish things, there are still going to be distractions. It's during the focused task-oriented network activation that we get the strongest activation of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is all about inhibitory activation. It's inhibiting things from distracting us. It's in inhibiting us, actually. It's inhibiting our reactions to distracting stimuli. Whereas the default mode network, so the medial prefrontal cortex is what's activated in the task-focused network. And the default mode network, there's multiple things happening, but the three main players in this are the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which don't worry about the names, but it is cool to note that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is all about context. It helps us to figure out what's appropriate in a given situation. But you got the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, you have the, posti the posterior cingulate, and you have the, the lateral parietal. Those are all sections of the brain that are working together like a little band to make stuff happen in that default mode network. And they're all supposed to be like playing together. That's why I used the analogy of the band. They're all like doing their own thing, but they're working together to create beautiful music. The issue in ADHD people is that these two networks are supposed to be anti-correlated. They're supposed to, like, when one is active, the other is suppressed, which makes sense. You're either doing something or you're not doing something. Well, in the ADHD brain, you always doing something. We always, we always do something. And we you just can't seem to get away from it. And the reason is because now through neuroimaging, we know that these two networks are no longer anti-correlated. They're actually correlated. So when one is activated, the other is activated too. And that's a problem. Because like when you're in the default mode network, there's way more sensory information coming in. And each one of those things that are coming in is a possible distraction. Whereas during the task-focused network activation, the parts of the brain and the things that are activated create tunnel vision, both auditory and visual tunnel vision. That way we have less distractions so we can accomplish the task. Makes sense, right? But in the ADHD brain, these two things are no longer anti-correlated. They're happening at the same time. That's a problem. 
why is it a problem though? To me, this makes sense because this is where that's 2015 paper, they created this low dopamine theory because through imaging, they were able to realize that when there is not enough dopamine in the brain in ADHD people, there are certain neurons that are firing when they shouldn't distracting us. I, my notes say distracting the organism. I, sometimes I crack myself up with like weird crap like that. I'm like, let's just totally dehumanize it. But that's because I try to think about this as, as fairly as possible. And that's sometimes dehumanizing. But that aside, low dopamine means in the ADHD brain that certain neurons are firing when they shouldn't. And if something is firing when they shouldn't, that means usually that that medial prefrontal cortex that's activated in the task-focused network, that part of the brain isn't inhibiting the way it's supposed to be inhibiting. And it needs more dopamine in order to do that. So how do ADHD people get more dopamine? How do we, like, how have people throughout time been dealing with just less than desirable control over one's attention? Because that's, that's ultimately what we're talking about. Quick note on any kind of diagnostic like this. If you talk to a psychiatrist, at least a decent one, they'll tell you that things are a disorder when they become a problem for you living your life. The end. You have a disorder, you will have a diagnosis. They will give you a diagnosis on something when it is disruptive to your life. If it's just a quirk that you can deal with and it's not disruptive, why bother labeling yourself with these things? Because some people are going to have problems like a certain ADHD problems that you might not have. But once you identify yourself as an ADHD person because you have some of the same tendencies, you might assume tendencies that you don't actually already have. This is one of my issues with social media and all of that, but we'll get there a little down the line. Back to the topic what do we do? What do what do ADHD people do? We self-medicate like everybody else does. What's interesting is what we self-medicate with. What we self-medicate with, even though we have a hyperactivity disorder, an attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, we medicate with stimulants. They're our favorite things. Stimulants are where we go. We go to coffee. We are like the people who don't do drugs will like ADHD brains, especially will do coffee, not just like a cup in the morning or maybe a cup and a half or two, but like give me quad shot in the dark. Give me 17 cups of coffee. I used to drink a pot, like half a pot before I left home. And then I, I made an entire pot of coffee for myself. I drank black in the clinic that I was working at. I just needed so much dopamine in order to focus. All of these stimulants release dopamine. Coffee is a, a big one. Before it, people found out how terrible smoking was for you, cigarettes do the same thing. Cigarettes release a lot of dopamine. The, the new favorites now are meth and cocaine. Not that cocaine is new. Meth is fairly newer. Um, but all of these things are really, really powerful stimulants that 
I will, I'll tell a story about this friend I had, I would go over and trim for. She was a grower and she was awesome. And she was, she just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and had tons of stories and had a, such an interesting life. She was a blast to listen to and a blast to be around. But every once in a while, I'd go over and she would be very subdued. Like, very subdued. She was still there. It wasn't like she was, like, like gacked out or anything. She wasn't, like, staring at the wall, like, nodding out like heroin or anything like that. But she was subdued. And it was out of character. And it wasn't until I talked with another friend that used, um, and when I say used, they both used meth occasionally and together. And I found out that those times that I specifically named, including that day when we talked, she had used meth. And I was like, what in the hell? How do you use meth and then calm down? Like, how did how the hell does that work? Because uh, it's clearly not for that. Well, in an ADHD brain, it is. I miss that friend that she was awesome. But I, I found that very interesting. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK. I mean, I was able to pretty quickly relate it to, oh, ADHD, because the treatments that we have pharmacologically for ADHD, originally Ritalin. Ritalin was the original was the original treatment for ADD. And that is methylphenidate. Ritalin is basically methamphetamines. It's methylphenidate. Um, now we use Adderall and modafinil, both of which are for attention, but they also, interestingly enough, are also used for narcolepsy. They both have, I would say, off-label prescriptions for narcolepsy, but I don't think that they're considered off-label anymore. They, they're used for attention issues for ADHD, but also for narcolepsy, which I found I find quite interesting. But what they do, part of what they do, Ritalin, Adderall, Modafinil, is they actually help to not only produce way more dopamine, but they also coordinate the default mode network and that task-focused network. I find it perfect, of course, that we self-medicate but without diagnoses or possibly with, but we tend to self-medicate with stimulants. And even though it's a hyperactivity disorder, we are prescribed stimulants. And I think one of the most important conversations to have about this, about ADHD in particular, is around medication and when to medicate and how much to medicate and what to do with it. The Huberman podcast actually did. I recently listened to one of his uh, podcast episodes on ADHD, and he was talking about a friend of his, a colleague, who is a an MD and a PhD, and they have a child who is showing ADHD tendencies. And he asked about medication and treatment and when and all of that sort of thing. And one of the things I know is that children who are given medication, prescription medication for ADHD before puberty, wind up having a lot less of a chance of like naturally growing out of it. If they're given it before, 
if they're given Ritalin, say, like my generation, if they were given Ritalin and then just kept on that Ritalin through adolescence, about 50% of ADHD in childhood, people grow out of with proper treatment and whatever. They, they grow out of it, 50%. But it turns out that if you give a child ADHD medications before puberty, it kind of, it messes with things. And her response I found interesting because her child is prepubescent. And she said something I used to love hearing from providers when I was working in Western medicine. She was like, I think it's actually really good for children to get the medication that they need, Adderall, modafinil, whatever, nobody uses Ritalin anymore. It's really important and, and, and it's, it's useful to give it to them pre-puberty because that's when their brains are the most plastic. From three to 12, that's when, that's when brains are the most plastic and the most ready to change. And so if there is a cross-wiring of the default mode network and the task-focused network, she says, so long as you give the child the smallest viable dose, like the smallest possible dose that you can give them to, alle to alleviate their symptoms, what you're doing is you're essentially pharmacologically forcing focus into their body, but that activates that medial prefrontal cortex, which is about inhibition. Right. So you can force that to to happen. And then importantly, she said, you have to like taper them off. You can't just slap them on a dose and then just keep upping the dose when it stops being useful or slap them on the dose and leave it to be the same. It's a very conscious process if you're going to do it well to give a child exactly as my old supervisor. I doubt she'll ever hear this, but Dana Bazil, you were amazing. As she told me, just enough information to struggle. If you give a child just enough medication to struggle, they're going to not only get the boost that they need, they get the help that they need, but their brain still has to do the task itself, right? It's just enough to struggle, just enough that you can do it, but you'll struggle to get there. I mean, life is sweeter after the struggle anyway. I forget. I think that's there's a phrase in Latin or something for it. But if you can medicate the child to where they're barely able to like bar like barely able to function and but they are able to function and then you can titrate them down off of that, say somewhere around adolescence, then boom, that's kind of the path of least resistance as far as pharmacology goes, right? And the reason puberty is important has nothing to do with genitalia, but has everything to do with this massive biological change that happens in puberty where we get that frontotemporal activation or the prefrontal cortex really starts to develop then, right? So 
Another thing to keep in to keep in mind about all this and about jittery kids and their need for constant movement and all of that is that those are the parts of the brain that they're developing. They're developing those those parts that are like pre-motor movement. So you just have this kind of static in the system, these pre-motor activity. That's like that's what causes shakiness, right? Is this pre-motor activity and kids are full of it and they don't have that medial prefrontal cortex fully developed yet. And that's what the task-focused network relies on, is that medial prefrontal cortex. So they don't have the ability to, to really override the impulses that they have due to the stimuli that they experience. And so by, by helping them attain activation of the medial prefrontal cortex through pharmacology but only a little that seems to me to make really good sense and if you've listened to any of these podcasts before you know that i'm not a huge fan of medications but i am a huge fan of using a tool well and this seems like a marvelous marvelous way to use a tool well because i really after seeing those studies on prepubescent applications of Ritalin and the possibility for kind of downstream negative consequences for those kids as adults. I was pretty skeptical. But again, like always in medicine, it boils down to who's your provider? I hope you have a good one because some are very thoughtful and thorough like this, like this person and some not. So you have to use your best judgment. That's that that is the ultimate end all be all for this is you always you got to use your best judgment so interestingly enough in this treatment and self-medication for adhd it used to be that adderall was the second most popular abused drug basically that it was only second behind weed for non-prescription abuse and now it's not now it's no longer number two guess what it is it's number one it's number one people struggle really hard 25 percent now of college students are on non-prescription adderall 25% of students, that's, that's a lot. One in four, one in four college students take Adderall to just get by. And that brings up some interesting questions like why is it that we have overloaded our attentional capacity that we're, that we're demanding too much from ourselves and we've manufactured so much demand that we also have to manufacture the biological and the biochemical substrate as well. Um, that's very much, that is very much like an option. But there's, for me, another option. And the other option really looks at we'll get here at the, at the very end with social media but in 2014 there was a study where they looked at 7000 adolescents with smartphones and they compared them to their counterparts without smartphones to see how much time that they spent on a day on their smartphones 
2014, which is they way less than how many we're on now. But they, they compared the time, and turns out one hour as an adolescent, one hour of screen time was enough to have measurable like ADHD levels of attention deficit. That I find very interesting because that means that our smartphone usage is dramatically adding to our to our load essentially right because load is not the same thing as weight your load is how you carry the weight and whether or not the weight and the weight being how much of how much attention we need now that's the weight but social media affects our load because it's how we carry it it's basically like trying to walk around with an extra 150 pounds with a bum knee you could manage that 150 pounds if you didn't have a bum knee but because you do and you're constantly having to compensate because of the bum knee you're much more likely to injure yourself or need that biological or biochemical substrate to keep up with the demand of the of the weight of the load so to me that is a big that's probably that's a big influence as to why attention is struggling so much i wrote an article that i published on al chrysalis medicine about how free costs focus and now we're like we're moving into the things that make us struggle like the ADHD aside, things that make us struggle to focus. And we social media is one. And I think one of the reasons that social media is one, regardless of it actually being social media or anything about social media, it's just that all of those apps are free. We use a lot of free apps and things on our phones. And the currency that is being exchanged there is our attention. So the article, Free Costs Focus, was looking at how if you don't pay money for things, everything costs money. So if you don't pay money for it, you will pay for it in another way. And since all of it's based on ad revenue, you're going to pay for it with your attention. Your attention will be put onto an ad rather than on whatever it is that you want to do. So anything that you, anything that you participate in regularly that is free is costing you focus. It's costing me focus. It's costing all of us our ability to focus on things. And like I said at the beginning, focus is the single most valuable currency on the planet, period. Focus is the seat for everything of value any human being has ever created, whether it's an entire city or a relationship. Focus is the seat of it. How can we make our ADHD symptoms better? Um, if you Google it, you're going to find lots and lots of things like the ADHD diet. And 
diets are always very funky, very weird to me because it's so we know that digestion is so incredibly personal and it is it like a lot of it's inherited them eating grains and things from your lineage is important for good digestion. You might be allergic to things that come from other parts of the world that your bloodline has never really been exposed to, and they're mild allergies. But there was one study that was done really, really well in 2011, published in Lancet, one of the best journals. And it since was like a little bit... Um, controversied, but there, there's been some more studies uh, that have really come, come through and been like, yeah, no, we did some more and they actually did a great job. So any of my nerds out there, you know that like P value is very important. It's like how fudge, how fudgeable are these results? And a normal P value is 0.05. That's like normal for um, if something to get published. Well, the P value for this study in 2011 was 0.0001. So that's like fucking phenomenal. That's awesome. The chances of this being fudgeable is really darn low. And what they looked at was an ADHD elimination diet, but they were smart. This is what I love about it. They didn't just be, they didn't just tell everybody to eliminate the same things. No, they did a control. They did multiple controls, but the, the most, the first most important control was testing every single person that was in the study for mild allergies. If there were severe allergies, they were removed because they actually produced a second control, which was really impressive and cool. The second control, they created a self-control where they had these people over time on these elimination diets and then they had it to where they removed all the things that they were eliminating to make sure that they were their own control. That way they took into account things that uh, that are like I was talking about things that have been um, like we've been genetically exposed to through diet, through our ancestry. So lots of good controls, fabulous study. And what they did is they tested people to see what they were allergic to and then removed everything from their diet that they had mild allergies to. And turns out that they had fantastic results with this. They had phenomenal results with people and their ADHD symptoms by eliminating foods that they were mildly allergic to, which is super, super duper cool. And this is where we can get into mediation versus modulation a little bit. Because mediation means that you are fundamentally replacing something or fulfilling something that is that has been that's empty in the science in the the Chinese medicine terms something that's empty um, versus something that's replete something that's replete or been full needs to be modulated that way there can th th things can shift something in the system needs modulated that way the energy in the system can be can be distributed differently. Whereas mediation is if you're dehydrated and you, there's not enough plasma, not enough liquid, not enough water in your blood, and plasma is like 98 point something something percent water, an IV will mediate your dehydration. Not 
drinking more beer, knowing that you're dehydrated and you haven't drunk any water and you just keep drinking beer, knowing it's a diuretic and that's going to make you pee, that is a modulation. Because it's not, it's not fixing the problem of you being dehydrated. It's just not making it worse, <laughs> right? It's, it's plugging a hole in the bucket, not filling it. And that's the concept of mediation versus modulation. And this is an important concept when it comes to the pharmacology of ADHD or the pharmacology of anything. You're looking at, is this mediating something or is this modulating something? And it's kind of correlation versus causation as well. It's a very similar concept of uh, correlation would be modulation and causation would be mediation and something similar to that. And th there might be some very smart scientific person who's like, that's wrong. But to me, that makes the most sense. So in meth, what is happening is you're mediating this lack of dopamine, right? So you get a dump, a massive dump of acetylcholine, of epinephrine, and of uh, dopamine, and a little bit of serotonin, but really those those first ones, those you get a huge dump of those into the brain and body. I mean, and with meth, it's hundreds of times it would be expected to be found in the brain. And so that provides the dopamine that eliminates or mediates the low dopamine in the low dopamine theory. And then that person can both be aware of everything that's around them, all the things that are happening, that default mode network, and be able to limit their own reactions to the stimuli according to what's important to them in that moment because they have sufficient dopamine. That's a mediation. There are a new drugs that are on the market. Ritalin kind of did a, did a similar thing, but there are new drugs on the market that are, that are modulators in the same way that most antidepressants are serot selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now there are dopamine reuptake inhibitors, and they're like even with insurance, they're like $1,000 a month. It's kind of ridiculous. But concept of mediation versus modulation is really important to me, I think understanding the difference between the two can be very informative for us when we're looking at the nitty gritty details of how to treat something or what's happening when we choose to treat or when we choose to intervene in one way or another. And speaking of intervening, there is a very, very awesome study that was done and You've heard me talk about the importance of focus and my love of mindfulness and meditation. And this study was not done as a mindfulness study, but it is the exact same thing. I've already done enough to try to convince you to meditate. I still I think that you should. If you don't want to, who cares? Like, do you? But this was really cool because... There's this concept of attentional blinks. 
and we know that we know they're real and like an example of an attentional blink is the like where's waldo you go and there could be two waldos but as soon as your brain sees the first waldo you celebrate and you stop noticing anything another way that they'll do these do the study is they'll say like okay here's a here's a line of numbers um going in front of you pick out the seven and the nine and they'll play those numbers right by and you'll see the seven if the seven comes first you'll see the seven and then you'll have an attentional blink where your brain is doing a little happy dance because you did what you were supposed to do with that task focused network you saw the seven but during that little micro celebration you missed the nine and we know that it works that way because you can scroll the numbers by at the same rate and ask them to just look for the nine and they'll see the nine or just the seven and they'll see the seven. But if you catch one, then you're going to blink and miss the other. And it's this attentional blink because you're not actually necessarily blinking with your eyes, but your brain is not able to is not looking for the thing anymore because it's having a little micro celebration. So the long story short with attentional blinks is if you see something that you're looking for, you're automatically missing other things. And so this ties really interestingly into the ADHD stuff because this study that they did was they did 17 minutes of they just called it interoception, which I've talked about on here, and that's just paying attention to what's happening in the, inside your body. They had everybody focus on their breath and just pay attention to the sensations of their body for 17 minutes. And during that, only having done it once, once they had finished, the amount of attention, the amount and length of attentional blinks that they had were reduced greatly and over a long period of time they said permanently i highly doubt that it's permanent because nothing in the brain really is everything's use it or lose it in biology but it seems semi-permanent one round of 17 minutes of focused interoception or mindfulness practice or meditation produced a basically permanent or semi-permanent minimization of attentional blinks. Now, why is that important to ADHD? Well, here's where my here's where my personal philosophy comes in on this. You can't have, or you can, but it's rare. It's rare to have ADHD without childhood trauma. And I call this the whole thing chronic stress adapted. I've talked about it a bunch of times on here before. Um, childhood trauma makes us adapt to inappropriate circumstances appropriately and by appropriately i mean the way that that evolution has programmed us in order to survive so in this whole thing of if you see something that you're looking for you're missing other things with this low dopamine theory having the task focused network and the default mode network having them crosswired means that you kind of have you have to have enough dopamine to be able to pay attention to everything everything in your environment everything that's like sensory that's uh, that's bombarding us all the time and to be able to override that with that medial frontal cortex at the same time and dopamine is the modulator 
that tells us to use one versus the other. That tells us to use the task-focused or the default mode. But in our ADHD brains, they're not actually so anti-correlated. So when one is playing, the other is playing too. And the reason is through chronic stress in childhood, at least in my opinion, the thing that's happening is you're always on the lookout for stress. You're always on the lookout for the thing that's a threat. And if you were if you were hit regularly or there was violence or there was like even or neglect or these things that are a challenge to your survival. And most things are a challenge to your survival as a child because you don't have any survival skills. You're always on the lookout for that. You're always looking for the next threat. But that doesn't mean that you get to stop doing the things that you have to do. You still have to go to school and do your chores or take out the trash or whatever. So that's why I think the default mode network and the task-focused network get crosswired. Is because we have to be able to focus on the task that we're, that we're meant to do. But we also have to be able to pay attention to what's happening around us in case of a threat. That is why I think the those two anti-correlated networks in the brain become correlated in ADHD. I think it's chronic stress. It could be trauma and like a big T trauma or small T trauma, but that is what makes the most sense to me. And with these attentional blinks, What's happening is we're looking so hard for something, and we may not even know what it is, that we start missing other things. And what are the things that we miss? Things that are less tangible, things that are, that are less impedent on our lives. Like, I don't know, the concept of time? Going back to like the very beginning of this and being like, yeah, we have really hard times with time perception. Like, that's... That makes perfect sense to me. Time is just not a thing when all the other things are a thing. It falls to the wayside because we're so focused on the things that we actually need to do. We're not as focused on the context. And so we miss pieces of the context. And the more abstract, like time, even though it's very real and marches on with, with or without us, it's abstract enough, it falls to the wayside. So if you needed another reason to try meditation, doing it just once for 17 minutes reduces the amounts of attentional blinks permanently. According to that study, like I said, I think it's semi-permanent. But semi-permanently to permanently, 17 minutes, one time can change the way that your brain intakes information. And I think that's phenomenal. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on it because I already talked about it a little bit, but now I'm going to move to the social media aspect. Um, social media and smartphone aspect of this. Like I said, that this study from 2014, it was 7,000 adolescents, and it was one hour. We spend like four to six times that amount of time on our phones now. We spend way more time on our phones than we did in 2014. And I think that's a huge part of the reason that we're struggling so much. And I think that's a huge part of the reason that now Adderall 
has passed marijuana in our like favorite pastimes for young adults. It's crazy. It's that like that's so bonkers to me. I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it's also crazy and hilarious because it's like I I wanted to just like have a total brain shutdown and get out of my and just get out of my existence when I was it when I was that age and I that's I spent tons of time on pills and alcohol and weed and whatever I could get my hands on but never was I I mean they didn't have Adderall back then so maybe maybe I would have but it's so interesting to me that it's like we, we think of weed as like this numbing thing and then Adderall as this activating thing. And weed is not always numbing. There is a very interesting conversation that we could have about how it's, it is it is just the kind of the same things like, CB, uh, like CBD, THC and like the CBD1 receptors and CBD2 receptors and how it's the same, the, the same um, things that are mediating the reactions that we have to marijuana but the different strains will have tendencies toward certain areas of the body or the brain and so depending on where the cbd1 because that's where that's where pretty much all of the activity happens wherever those cbd1 receptors are activated in the body that's what's going to determine the type of high that you have I forget where I was going with that, but now you know that. So social media has absolutely fundamentally made things more difficult. I've talked about the everything that's free costs focus, and this is part of it. So what I wanted to do with this podcast was actually talk about ADHD, get everybody kind of on the same page, to understand i mean where it came from the first like the first account being in 1904 and then it's staying add until the 80s and then it became adhd and we didn't really know why but then we found a neurobiological substrate in 2015 with the low dopamine theory and i i hope that people have a better understanding as to what adhd actually is there's lots of ways that it can manifest there's like and there's tons of individuation of course there's many different phenotypes or expressions of the same thing and there's it's just being it's being talked about so much in so many places in so many ways that are i i can't stand i i loved mental health tiktok a few years ago um and i haven't been on tiktok in ages now but at least a year but even on Instagram and things, I'll I get flooded with so much mental health TikTok and just shorts and um, that sort of thing. Reels, that's what they're called. I get flooded with so many of those. I loved it at first, but then I just saw a serious downward spiral in like people are excusing helplessness they're like they're they're acting helpless because they're like i think i have adhd so now i'm helpless and i have i have adhd paralysis and some of these things are just really bothersome to me because they i i was diagnosed with add slash adhd because it was the it was the late 80s and i i've learned how to work with it and I've also learned how to kind of curb it. 
where I trained myself to kind of separate the default mode network from my task-focused network. Not completely. And I love that they're not completely separated in me, that they're not completely anti-correlated and that they, there is some correlation because it allows me more potential allows me more potential for interaction, more potential for sensory input, which is more potential for enjoyment and more uh, potential for engagement in, in my own life in a really wonderful, powerful way, how I can notice many things all at once and yet only react to certain ones. And that I feel like is, is that is possible for me because one, I was never medicated. My mother decided not to medicate me. Um, and I'm I'm very thankful for that. I it, maybe it would have maybe it would have gone great. I have no idea, but um, my small town doctors in in Indiana I feel like just didn't know enough and probably wouldn't have titrated and who knows. But she didn't medicate me, and so I was left with what I was left with, and I've made the most out of it to a like in a way that I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be any other way. I love. I love the amount of correlation versus anti-correlation that I have among these networks because it does allow me a capacity that is far beyond what most people have. Now, and, and that, that still comes with consequences, right? Like I can still, I can pay attention to a bunch of things or I can notice a bunch of things and still regulate myself pretty well. But that means I have to, like, and I'm mostly talking about like outdoors, around people, social situations, that sort of thing. And then I need lots and lots of alone time where I don't have to do that. And I can really, really downregulate because if I'm around anyone, if I'm like literally effing anyone at all, I cannot fully downregulate. And that's part of my ADHD. I cannot fully downregulate because that would mean a turning on exclusively of the default mode network and not the task-focused network. And I can't do that when I'm around anyone because I'm always expecting a threat. I'm always expecting stress. I'm always expecting something to go wrong. And that's because of my childhood stuff. Um, so I think it's marvelous that I get to have this, that because it allows me a capacity to pay such close attention to a person I'm talking to, to really be fully present with them in a powerful way. And when somebody else walks up, I can never break focus and like hold my hand up over to the side and like give the indication of just a moment without ever losing any of the focus that I have on this person. So they still feel completely, utterly enveloped in my attention and focus and perception, even though I'm also like kind of fielding these other things that that would or could derail my focus which then affects the relationship so i hope you got something out of this i i think this is an important conversation because many many people are having it but i don't think it's understood well i think people think that they understand it and that is dangerous there's nothing more dangerous than uh, than a little information, and that's what everybody gets in all the short form content that's happening all over the internet. A little bit of information is extremely dangerous, and I think that's what was happening with ADD, ADHD, 
And I hope that now you have a little bit more information. You understand the neurological um, underpinnings. You understand default mode network and task-focused network. You understand elimination diets and that they work really, really well for ADHD. But eliminating things that you have been tested for that you are mildly allergic to, that is huge. I forgot to mention with that, there's one thing across the board that we know for a fact helps everyone with ADHD when it comes to diet. It's not keto. It's not vegan. It's none of that. It is eliminating simple sugars completely. The eliminate means none, not reduce, eliminate simple sugars. If you have ADHD stuff, eliminating simple sugars is the single most powerful thing that you can do for yourself. Probably immediately followed by, because there's no barrier of entry, meditate for 17 minutes at least once. At least once. And you'll be better forever. Literally. One time, 17 minutes. Try it. You'll be better forever. That's cool. That's a great return on, on investment. That's a good ROI. So there it is. That's what I wanted to say about ADHD. Thank you very much for listening. If you made it this far in the episode, I really appreciate you. This is such an honor for me. And it's such a good practice for me because it makes me think about not just what I know, but what I know versus what other people might know. And forces me to stay curious about things. It forces me, this podcast forces me to stay curious and engaged in the information and the world. And I really appreciate this opportunity that you provide for me. So thank you very much for listening. If you like this episode or you like the podcast, consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can buy me a coffee. All of the links are below. Thank you very much again. And remember, y'all, stay curious and stay uncomfortable. Mm-hmm.